Disney's Episode 8, Into the Woods. Hello and welcome back to Disney, a podcast for Disney fans. I am your host, Christopher, and uh, I am talking about Into the Woods in this episode. And uh, this is a movie that I kind of have mixed feelings about, to be perfectly honest. Like, I have come to appreciate it a lot more over the years, as opposed to when I first saw it, when I remember not really liking it. And... I'll get into some reasons for that, you know, throughout this episode, but um like I said, I do definitely have more appreciation for it now. Uh this was first a Broadway musical. I believe it premiered in 1987 and it was done by James Lapine and Stephen Sondheim and Stephen Sondheim is a pretty big name in the world of theater and Broadway. Uh other than Into the Woods, he's probably best known for Sweeney Todd, which is one of my favorite movies, the movie adaptation that came out in 07 with Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter, directed by Tim Burton. Wonderful movie. And I think that one of the reasons why my appreciation for this movie has grown over the years, and I've come to appreciate it a lot more, is that I feel like the more times that I watch this movie, the better able I am to understand what it's supposed to be, what it's going for. Whereas... The first time I saw it, it was very, very jarring because I was not familiar with the Broadway musical at all. I'd never seen it. I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know any of the music from it. And so going to see the movie, I was kind of expecting this fun, adventurous Disney movie, and it doesn't feel like a Disney movie at all. (laughs) You know, like, honestly, the only similarity between this movie and the type of thing that Disney usually does, as far as like fairy tale movies are concerned, is that A, it has music, it's a musical, and B, it has some elements of fairy tales. But other than that, it doesn't feel like a Disney movie at all. And I will get more into that throughout this discussion. But I think that that just takes some adjustment, at least it did for me. And I. Uh, Anyway, without further ado, though, I do want to just jump right into this movie because uh, that actually, uh, this is a good spot, I think, for me to share an announcement. Uh, But I have ultimately decided to retire the news section, and I did want to spend a minute or so talking about why that is. So there are actually a couple of things that factored into this decision. The first one is that I just feel like I'm not really offering anything unique by sharing what's current in the world of Disney because that's all out there for you to find, you know, like I'm not giving you anything unique. I mean, I suppose you could argue that the uniqueness comes from choosing what Disney news I want to share, like kind of curating what I want to share on the podcast and what I find the most exciting and what I find the the most uh, intriguing like that is somewhat of an art, I suppose, but I just feel like I'm kind of wasting everybody's time 
talking about news that's easily available for anybody to look at. And that's not to say that, uh, you know, when there are exciting announcements, which there definitely will be uh, coming from Disney, about Disney, that I myself am just way too stoked not to share. Like, of course, I will talk about those things on the podcast. Of course, they'll come up, you know, but I just don't feel the need anymore to devote an entire section of the podcast every single episode to talking about Disney news. And the other reason for that uh, is that I sometimes will feel the need for various reasons to plan way in advance, you know, so there might be times, for example, when I just, I'm very, very in the zone and I'm just kind of like marathoning, I'm binging these movies that I want to cover and I might knock out like several movies in a period of a week or two and decide, you know what, I've got a little bit of extra time on my hands this week. I'm going to record a couple of episodes of the podcast. Now, that becomes a problem when I have a news section that I want to be as relevant and as, uh, you know, updated as possible. You know, like, I don't want to be sharing news on the podcast that's a month or two old or even a few weeks old, you know, because that just kind of defeats the purpose of it. So if I don't have a news section, then... I can go through and I can burn through several episodes at a time and not have to worry about, you know, well, this is going to be a problem in a few weeks when I release this because the news isn't going to be current anymore. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about that. So yeah, I, without further ado, though, I do want to actually talk about Into the Woods, but I just wanted to explain again why it is that, uh, officially speaking, I am retiring that section from the podcast. So Into the Woods was originally released on December 8th, 2014, written by, uh, you know, the same writers as the musical, James Lapine, and uh, it might be Lapine, to be honest, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, <laughs> it is, of course, based on the Broadway musical by Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine, and directed by Rob Marshall. And then we've got a pretty wonderful cast here. That's one thing that I think that this movie does have going for it is that for the most part, it's got a shining cast. We've got Meryl Streep as the witch, James Corden as the baker, Emily Blunt as the baker's wife, Anna Kendrick as Cinderella, Chris Pine as Cinderella's prince, Lilla. I'm honestly not sure if this is Lilla or Lila. It's got two L's in it, which causes me to lean toward Lilla, but that's also a name that I don't think I've ever heard before, so I'm not sure, but I'm going to go with Lilla. It's Lilla Crawford as Little Red Riding Hood, Daniel Huddlestone as Jack, Tracy Allman as Jack's mother, Mackenzie Mosey as Rapunzel, Billy Magnuson as Rapunzel's prince, and of course, Johnny Depp as the Big Bad Wolf. And the music is, of course, all done by Stephen Sondheim. And uh, the movie is kind of like a love letter, if you will, to classic fairy tales and even arguably Disney movies, even though, you know, this was done in the 80s, so uh, it did not originally have any affiliation with Disney at all. Uh, it was a Broadway musical that, again, had nothing to do with Disney. It only became affiliated with Disney because of this movie adaptation. 
But I do still think that there are some tropes that are kind of played on in this movie that come primarily from Disney movies as opposed to classic fairy tales. So, uh, quick plot synopsis. Intertwining several classic fairy tales, including Little Red Riding Hood, Cinderella, and Jack and the Beanstalk, Into the Woods follows a baker and his wife who are cursed by a witch, preventing them from having children. In order to break the curse, they must venture into the woods to find four magical items before the next full moon. Along the way, they encounter familiar characters from various fairy tales, including a cunning wolf, a charming prince, and a vengeful giant. As the characters' stories intertwine, they face unexpected challenges and consequences, forcing them to question their desires and the true meaning of happily ever after. But before I jump into my observations and thoughts about this movie, I do want to offer you some trivia. This section is not going away anytime soon, probably not ever, <laughs> but, uh, you know, because this, I think, is something that is fun to talk about, you know, just some interesting behind-the-scenes sort of things, you know, and as always, uh, these interesting facts, if you will, come from IMDb. I will link the page and the show notes so that you can read more of them because there are a lot and I am not including all of them. Uh, Meryl Streep apparently stated that after turning 40, she was offered three witch roles in one year, but she had implemented a no-witches rule. She ended up breaking that rule after meeting composer and lyricist Stephen Sondheim, and of course the director Rob Marshall for this film. So that's, I think, pretty telling as to how interesting and complex this character is, the witch, which I will get into in more detail. Uh, but the fact that she had this rule that, you know, I don't want to play any witches, but then she did in this movie, I think goes to show how compelling this character is. Uh, at a question and answer session after a screening of the film, James Corden recalled an incident during rehearsals in which Meryl Streep jumped on a table and her foot got caught in her costume. She started falling backwards, head first, toward a concrete floor. Both Corden and director Rob Marshall froze in fear that they were about to witness Meryl Streep's death. However, a pregnant Emily Blunt stepped in and caught Streep before she hit the floor. So, and speaking of her being pregnant at the time, the ironic thing is that her character in this movie, the baker's wife, is unable to have a child because she, well, okay, that's not technically accurate. It's technically the baker who was unable to have a child because the baker's wife is with him She's also unable to have a child, but it should be clarified that she's unable to have a child with him. It's not that she is cursed. He is. Uh, so yeah, she's unable to have a child with him, and she was actually pregnant during filming this movie, Emily Blunt, that is. Um, and so this actually resulted in multiple techniques that were used to try to hide her pregnancy. Uh, and this was something, this fact here is something that even though I knew nothing about the Broadway musical, or at least very little about it, this was something that I honestly suspected might be the case, and turned out it absolutely was, and I'll talk more about why I suspected that this was the case a little later on, but in the original Broadway musical, the character of Little Red Riding Hood 
was actually played by a young woman in her 20s rather than this young preteen girl that played her in the movie. And again, I'll talk later on why it is that I kind of suspected that that was the case. Uh, but we also have Francis de la Tour in this movie playing the giant's wife. And I wanted to bring that up because she also played a giant in the Harry Potter franchise. Uh, she played the half giant Madame Olymp Maxime in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And this movie, Into the Woods, doesn't really give you a great opportunity to see her face, but there are a couple of scenes, a couple of shots where you can get a good look at her face and you can clearly see that, yeah, this is the same uh, person who played that giant in the Harry Potter movies, in that particular Harry Potter movie, if you've seen the Harry Potter movies. Um, I also know her from the show Vicious, which is a hilarious sitcom, a hilarious British sitcom that I highly, highly recommend if you haven't seen it. Uh, but she played a really hilarious character on that show. Uh, and then lastly, the same cow who was actually named Molly in real life is used for both Milky White and the cow that the baker altered to try to fool the witch. But yeah, like I said, uh, I will link the IMDb page so you can look at more facts if you wish to. But without further ado, I want to get into actually talking about my thoughts and feelings and observations about this movie. So I do want to say, like, right off the bat, this movie feels very Tim Burton-esque. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that Colleen Atwood is the costume designer for this movie. And she very often is the costume designer for Tim Burton's movies. They collaborate together very frequently. In fact, there are other movies that are not Tim Burton movies, but that kind of feel like Tim Burton movies that she did the costume design for. So another example is uh, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, the one with Jim Carrey. Uh, that does very much have like a Tim Burton feel to it, but it's not a Tim Burton movie. He had nothing to do with it. But part of the reason why it feels like a Tim Burton movie is the costumes, and Colleen Atwood was the costume designer. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to point that out. Uh, James Corden, who, of course, is playing the baker, is narrating the story. And we get at the very beginning, once upon a time, in a far-off kingdom, there lay a small village at the edge of the woods— and one thing that I really, really like about the fact that he's narrating this, and this is something that on this rewatch, I'd completely forgotten about. Like, I didn't remember this until the very end when it was revealed. And I really like this because it does pay off at the end. Uh, and we get introduced pretty quickly, pretty early on in the movie, to all of these different fairy tale characters. We get Cinderella, Jack... Little Red Riding Hood, we get the baker and his wife, although they are original characters that did not really come from a fairy tale, although I don't remember where I read this. I read somewhere that they were inspired by Rapunzel's parents in the original Rapunzel fairy tale because Rapunzel's parents were a couple that were having trouble conceiving a child, and so that's where the inspiration came from. 
I can't confirm 100% whether or not that's true because I don't remember where I read that. But for the most part, they are original characters that were created for this story. Uh, and it's interesting because it's kind of around them that everybody else's stories uh, are centered, right? Like, they're kind of like the heart of the story in a lot of ways. And they're the central pair. And they tie together many of the various plot threads. And I do love The Baker's Wife. I kind of have a tough time, in fact, deciding between her and the witch as my favorite character. Uh, this movie, here's the thing. I had remembered this being my first introduction to Emily Blunt. I've always told people that, that, you know, Into the Woods was the first movie that I saw Emily Blunt in. And I was looking at her filmography a few days ago and saw that she was in The Devil Wears Prada. Or actually, I wasn't looking at her filmography. I was looking at that list of trivia from IMDb, and it mentioned how Emily Blunt and Meryl Streep had already been in a movie together, The Devil Wears Prada. And the thing is, I am pretty sure that I did see The Devil Wears Prada before seeing Into the Woods, by several years, in fact, which means that this movie was not my first introduction to Emily Blunt. <laughs> but it's kind of like my first memory of Emily Blunt, if that makes sense. Because like the first time I saw The Devil Wears Prada, I didn't remember her being in that. And now I can clearly look back on and remember her role. But for some reason, when I saw Into the Woods, I wasn't thinking, oh, she looks familiar. I've seen her in something before. And then like frantically try to figure it out until it pops into my head or look it up on IMDb and find out that, oh, she was in The Devil Wears Prada. Like, no, I don't remember ever doing that. So it's kind of weird. But The Devil Wears Prada is technically the first movie that I saw her in, not Into the Woods. But what I will say is that out of all of the movies that I've seen her in, and I've seen her in quite a few movies, uh, Girl on the Train, A Quiet Place, The Devil Wears Prada, I could go on and on. I've seen her in a lot of movies, and I think that this, her performance as the baker's wife and Into the Woods, is my favorite. I think that this is her best performance. Uh, so anyway, we, as I mentioned, we also meet Cinderella, and she's doing the usual Disney princess thing of wanting more out of life, which, of course, is also kind of Cinderella's thing. <laughs> uh but she also has the superpower of calling forth animals, and it seems to be a literal superpower <laughs> because someone, I think it's Little Red Riding Hood, even later in the movie, calls her out on it and says, like, wait a minute, you can talk to birds? <laughs> so I love how they just called attention to that. And I think that that's an example of what I was talking about earlier of this also being like a love letter to Disney movies because I don't really remember that being a major thing in the original classic fairy tales. Maybe it was. It's been a long time since I've read some of those, but uh, you know, this trope of like the Disney princesses being able to communicate with animals is definitely something that I think is very closely tied with Disney. And then we're kind of introduced to Little Red Riding Hood because she's in the baker's shop, the baker and his wife, their shop. And 
she keeps repeatedly taking more food. And the baker and his wife kind of have a disagreement about this. And I'm kind of team baker here. In fact, I'm 100% team baker here. Like, don't get me wrong. I appreciate the baker's wife's kindness and her empathy and her willingness to give. I get that. And I think that that's the point. Like, that's what we're supposed to see is that she's kind. You know, she has a soft spot for children and she's giving. And that's all well and good. But at the same time, this is their livelihood and they don't seem to be very rich. And the baker's absolutely right. Little Red Riding Hood is stealing. She's a thief. Uh, and she's also revealed to be dishonest because she claims that the food that she's stealing is for her grandmother, but then it's revealed that she eats most of it herself on the way home. So, yeah, I mean, not a very nice little kid here. <laughs> but at least she does develop and change a little bit because she's also very much a spoiled brat. Like, this is a brat. An annoying brat. <laughs> but you do kind of see somewhat of a development, a character arc, and, you know, I definitely do appreciate that. And we soon find out that the witch has cursed the baker so that he will never be able to have children. And we get the backstory of why that is. Like, his father apparently stole precious magic beans of hers, and so... She got revenge not only by stealing their youngest child, but cursed them so that his bloodline would never be able to produce children again. Uh, and we also find out that she is basically Gothel from the Rapunzel story and from Tangled uh, because Rapunzel is the baker's sister. So the child that she abducted from the baker's family the baby that she abducted is Rapunzel. So Rapunzel is the baker's sister. The witch is basically Gothel. And Meryl Streep is just so, so good in this role. She shines in this role. She is so brilliant. Like I said, I have a tough time choosing between her and the baker's wife as my favorite character. I feel like if I'm choosing favorite character... I might have to go with the baker's wife. If I'm choosing favorite performance, I might have to go with Meryl Streep. Uh, she's just so, so good in this role. And I love how <laughs> she's supposed to be ugly for most of the movie. Eventually, she does manage to break the curse on her and becomes, quote, beautiful again. But, like, she's supposed to be ugly, but I mean... Is anyone even actually buying that? I mean, this is still Meryl Streep. She looks fabulous. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But then, um, you know, we also find out that Cinderella in this version kind of sort of still has a fairy godmother, although it's a different interpretation, which is really cool. Like, her fairy godmother is her mother's grave, and her mother's grave is basically at a tree where she will go to ask for things and uh, make wishes, basically. And yeah, her wish is granted by this magical mother tree. And this is never really explained, which <laughs> is kind of funny. Um, you know, but yeah, her wish is granted and she's given this beautiful gown to wear. And, uh, you know, she can go to the ball now. And I do like how 
the movie kind of subverts your expectations, and I think that's kind of the point of it. That's the whole point of the musical, the Broadway musical, really, is to kind of subvert your expectations about fairy tales and happy endings, and also poke fun at them, you know, in kind of a cynical way. And there are things that happen that are kind of like twists to the story that you know, and they kind of, like, work. Like, when Cinderella does get to the ball, I mean, it's basically revealed that she does not have the midnight curfew like she normally does in her story. It's not like the mother tree, (laughs) you know, told her that, you know, yeah, you look beautiful now. Look at your wonderful gown and you know, your, uh, your, your glass shoes and, you know, just, you look amazing, but you only have until midnight with this stuff. And then it's all going to disappear. Like, no, that doesn't happen in this version. She leaves the ball or the festival as it's called in this version, uh, because she's not sure what she wants. Like she basically is leaving of her own volition and she does it three times (laughs) because the festival is a three night event. And every single time she goes to the ball, she goes to the festival, presumably dances with the prince. We don't see that, but presumably that happens and then flees because she isn't sure what she wants out of life. And uh, you know, I I also love how she ends up on the third night, I think it is, leaving the slipper on purpose. Like, that just makes so much sense because I've seen people point out before that it's kind of a plot hole that the shoe supposedly fits her perfectly and yet it slips off her foot when she's running down the stairs. And yet that's not what happens here. In this version, she leaves it behind deliberately Because she figures that way, I don't have to make a choice. The choice will be made for me. And at one point, after the first or second time that she runs, she meets the baker's wife in the woods. And the baker's wife says something like, you know, well, if a prince were looking for me, I certainly wouldn't be hiding. And this is not only foreshadowing something that's going to happen later in the story, but also it kind of indicates to us that she might not be totally happy with the baker. Uh, And there are other clues about that as well that come up here and there. And then as Little Red Riding Hood is on her way home to her grandmother, to her granny, uh, we meet the wolf, the big bad wolf, and he is played by Johnny Depp. And, you know, one thing I do find kind of funny is that I remember it being, like, highly marketed that... Johnny Depp was in this movie. I mean, he's even on a lot of the movie posters where it'll show like, I think it shows like the witch. I could be getting this wrong, but I think it shows like the witch, the baker, Cinderella, and the wolf, I think, on the poster that I'm thinking of in my head right now. And it's just funny because it's like he's in five, maybe 10 minutes of the movie maybe 10, you know, like he has a very, very small, very short-lived role in this movie. Um, But I do love how he looks like a man in a wolf costume, like he doesn't look like a wolf. And I think that's done deliberately. And I think that it's done for a couple of reasons. One is that it does give the movie more of a quote, play feel. And 
that is very much the case throughout a good chunk of the movie is that it does sort of feel like you're watching a play. It's filmed very much like a play. And, you know, that is something that I think does set the movie apart because most of the time when you're watching a movie that's based on a play or a stage production of some kind, a musical, it still feels like a movie, you know? Uh, like The Phantom of the Opera, for example, the one with uh, Gerard Butler and Emmy Rossum, because that's the only film adaptation of the musical. There are obviously a lot of other Phantom of the Opera movies, like the one with um, Robert England from the 80s, but that's not really related to the musical at all. But the 2004 movie with Gerard Butler and Emmy Rossum, it still feels very, very much like a movie. Because, you know, you frequently have, like, uh, and I think that one thing that really worked well for that movie is that in the original production, in the original Broadway production, there were probably scenes in which the audience was kind of acting in the play as well, if that makes any sense. Because there are so many scenes and sequences in The Phantom of the Opera that take place at an opera house, that take place, like... You know, basically what you're watching on the stage is the opera that is being performed in the musical because the musical is set at an opera house, set at a theater. So there are scenes where the actual audience that's watching the musical is also, in a sense, acting as the audience that's watching the opera in the musical, if that makes any sense. So... You've got this pretty expansive world. Like, the opera house is pretty big, you know? Um, and the movie does definitely jump around throughout a lot of different locations of the opera house, right? You've got different rooms that you see. You've got the stage. You've got Christine's room. Uh, you've got the the underground lair where the Phantom is. And, yeah, there are definitely a lot of different, like, little settings, if you will. Whereas, Into the Woods... Most of it is set in the woods, and the woods feel very much like a stage at times. And the camera shots, I feel, are very frequently uh, similar to the way that you would film a stage production. And there are also usually only like two or three people to a scene. Um, so yeah, I mean, you just watch it and you know. Like even if you go into it knowing nothing about it, having no knowledge whatsoever that it was even a Broadway musical, I feel like you watch this movie and you get to a certain point and you realize that, oh, this feels very much like a stage production. Like, I can tell this is based on a musical. So, uh, you know, I think that having Johnny Depp kind of look like a man dressed as a wolf helps contribute to that. But also, it is thematically appropriate on so many levels because... The whole Little Red Riding Hood thing is kind of like, you know, that whole story is kind of like a story about innocence and being naive, you know, and uh, basically your innocence allowing you to be tricked and deceived. And there is like a whole like allegory there. There's social commentary that can be made there about, uh, you know, somebody losing their innocence too young and whatever that might mean, you know, and, uh, the wolf is 
depicted in this story as very predatory and not just as a wolf. He seems very predatory as a man. And so, you know, it just makes a lot of sense to me to have him look like a man dressed as a wolf because it feeds into the commentary that's happening here. And this is what I meant earlier when I said that it makes a lot of sense to me, and I even suspected that the role of Little Red Riding Hood was most likely played by a much older person in the Broadway musical than in the movie. Because in some ways, I really feel like Disney did not really understand what it was doing here. Like, it didn't understand what it was affiliating itself with. I have read that apparently some of the lines in uh, Johnny Depp's song in this movie, Hello Little Girl, were toned down and made a little less explicit because apparently the commentary, the allegory that I was just hinting at a little while ago is much more on the nose in the musical. I have not yet looked at the lyrics of the version from the musical, but I feel like even the version that's here in the Disney movie is still pretty on the nose. It's still pretty obvious. Uh, And I just feel like it's possible that Disney didn't really fully understand Stephen Sondheim's brand (laughs) when they uh, decided to take on this movie, because I am only familiar with him, I think, because of Sweeney Todd and Into the Woods. I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think that I've ever seen any other movies that are based on productions of his. I don't think that I've ever seen like a stage production of anything other than, I've seen a live stage production of Sweeney Todd. In fact, just recently I did. Uh, It was like a couple of weeks ago that I saw a high school production of Sweeney Todd. uh, And Into the Woods, I've never seen a production of at all. Um, Sweeney Todd, I've seen that live stage production. And I've also seen a video version of the the Broadway production with Angela Lansbury. Um, It was a, uh, a, a DVD of it. Um, so Into the Woods, though, I've only seen the movie. So, but if you look at like Into the Woods and Sweeney Todd, they both have something in common, which is that they're both pretty cynical. They both use very dark, twisted, suggestive humor. And that's kind of Stephen Sondheim's thing from what I can tell. So it kind of seems like Disney didn't really completely pick up on that and just figured, oh, yeah, this is a very wholesome musical about family and friendship and uh you know yeah let's do it it's 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 about fairy tales it's got some characters that you know we basically own like Cinderella and uh you know is that the only one i i feel like yeah i feel like the only character in this movie that's really closely closely associated with disney is Cinderella uh but yeah i mean i just feel like that's probably why they jumped on it without fully understanding the material <laughs> because yeah it's it's pretty dark and uh you know he like i said he sings this song hello little girl and the lyrics could easily be interpreted as being about eating her which you know like on the surface is what he's singing about because he's planning on you know we all know the little red riding hood story we know what happens um so he's planning on basically following her home and then eating her and her grandmother. But the lyrics of this song 
could also be very easily interpreted as being about, well, you know. (laughs) I mean, just truly, a lot of what he says could be about food, but could also be about sex, and I think that that is 100% intentional. That's not me being dirty and reading too deeply into these lines. It's there. It's 100% there, I promise you. And it makes more sense when you, because that's why I had that thought, like, especially on this rewatch, I was thinking, wow, like, not only is this song very suggestive, but then the song that she sings after her experience with the wolf, I Know Things Now, is also very, very suggestive. And I feel like this would make a lot more sense if it were a young woman singing it, as opposed to a child who's probably only 11 or 12. But I mean, like, she sings in this song, but he seemed so nice, but he showed me things, many beautiful things that I hadn't thought to explore, and he made me so excited, well, excited and scared. I mean, how much more on the nose can you get? This is very obviously about losing your virginity to somebody. (laughs) Like, this is a little girl singing this. It's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. Like I said, I was just like kind of dumbstruck because I hadn't remembered this being so on the nose. Like for some reason on this watch, I was like, wow, this is so suggestive and this is so Stephen Sondheim. Like this is deliberate. This is 100% deliberate. But this is an example of what I'm talking about, about like Disney, maybe not, or whoever it was that kind of was in control of the casting here and whatnot and the direction, uh, maybe wasn't 100% or maybe they felt like, well, If we make her a young girl instead of a young woman in her 20s, then that'll kind of erase that suggestiveness and make it clear that he's only singing about eating her and that she's only singing about just her outlook on life changing. But I mean, no. The fact that I still picked up on it shows that it's still there. And because she's such a young girl, it's even worse because like that suggests that if that is what happened and I think that there is a way to read it that way then you know in the whole like eating thing being a metaphor if that is what happened then that makes him like not only a rapist but also like I don't even want to go here because it's just (laughs) you know it's so dark um but I'm sure you know where I'm going like he's he's kind of a rapist in more than one way uh, but yeah, um, Red Riding Hood, you know, she, Little Red Riding Hood, she, in this song, tells the baker, basically, you know, like, I had this experience, this very scary but also exciting experience, and it was basically like a first-time thing for me. She even, there's even a line in there about how she's always been very careful, you know, but now that's out the window, and it's like, yeah, it's it's so obvious what she's singing about here, like, what this is meant to be about, Uh, It just, it makes a whole lot more sense for it to be interpreted that way than for it to be interpreted about somebody who was just eaten and brought back to life. Like that doesn't, it doesn't work that way really. Uh, But I think that the movie also definitely subverts your expectations by allowing you to fall into this false sense of security that things are going to be okay because of how easy this all is. It's so convenient right? Because the four items that the witch needs 
to reverse the curse are a cow as white as milk, a cape as red as blood, hair as yellow as corn, and a slipper as pure as gold. And once you get that list, I think by that point, I could be wrong, but I think that by that point, we've already met all of the kind of side characters that play a role in this story. And so when we get that list, we know that, oh, Jack has a white cow. This cow's name is literally Milky White. (laughs) Uh, You know, and Little Red Riding Hood has a red cape. And Rapunzel has blonde hair, you know, bright yellow hair. And the gold slipper Cinderella has. So it's going to be perfect, right? All they have to do is just meet with these people in the woods, get these items. This is going to be so easy, right? But it's not. It's not easy. Now, granted, I will say that the baker probably should have just kept the cape because what happens is, I mean, he does end up getting the cape anyway because once he saves uh, Little Red Riding Hood from the wolf, she decides to give him the cape. But up till that point, she refused to give it to him and he tried to basically forcibly take it from her and she just screamed at the top of her lungs for a few seconds until he decided to come back and give it to her. And it is really funny because like when he gives it to her, he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just wanted to make sure that you really loved that cape. (laughs) And it is funny, but at the same time, it's like she's screaming at the top of her lungs and she also says, it's mine. And it's like, okay, you're right. That is your cape and he's trying to steal it from you. But where was that ideology when you were stealing all that bread from his store? That's exactly why I would say just take the cape. Don't worry about her screaming. Let the brat scream. (laughs) Just take it and run. Because she definitely stole, I would say she probably stole enough bread to make that cape just payment. You know what I mean? Like, I think that cape is probably proper payment. Uh, She probably even stole more bread than what that cape is worth. So, yeah, I mean, just this is important. You want to have a family. You need this red cape. What are the chances that you're going to come across another red cape in the next three days? Just take it. (laughs) So it was kind of easy. And then his empathy or whatever it is that comes into play there that makes him run back and give it to her. Maybe it's because she's screaming and he doesn't want to get in trouble, but he decides to give it back and he probably could have just taken it and ran, but whatever. But the point is, it's not as easy to get these things as you might initially think. Uh, In fact, you see the look of guilt on the baker's wife's face when she sees how attached Jack is to Milky White and he's so sad to have to give him up. Uh, But, you know... She she is kind of like what I was just talking about. She knows what needs to be done to make this happen, you know? And uh, whereas the baker, like I said, he runs back and gives that cape back to Little Red Riding Hood. So, uh, but yeah, Jack trades Milky White with the baker and his wife for some magic beans. And the baker and his wife basically think that they're conning Jack. They think that, They're just regular beans, right? They don't realize that they're magic, but they lie to him and tell him that they are. But what's ironic here is that their lying 
but they're not lying. Like they think they're lying, but they're not because they actually are magic beans. And I love the scene when uh, Jack's mother wakes up and like her bed is basically surrounded by vines from the beanstalk. And then she goes outside and there's like a skyscraper of a beanstalk in the sky, like next to the house that's going all the way up to the sky to the point where you can't even see the top of the beanstalk. And she screams at the top of her lungs. And the scream is so funny. (laughs) But prior to that though, I mean, she, she punishes Jack for trading Milky White for beans because they needed money. And she punishes him by, Uh, sending him to bed without supper. And it seems like maybe somewhat of a cruel punishment to uh, send a child who probably doesn't get that much to eat anyway because they're not very well off financially to send him off to bed without supper. But first of all, I think there are a couple of things at play here. First of all is it's kind of a fitting punishment because the whole reason why they needed to trade Milky White was so that they could have money to buy food. And That's not what he did. And so, you know, this is the consequence of what you did is you don't eat. But also, she might not have any food to feed him. Like, he might need to go to bed without supper because they don't have anything. So, yeah, it actually makes sense in a lot of ways. So it's also not too far into the movie that we meet... The princes, we meet Cinderella's prince and Rapunzel's prince. Like most of the characters in this movie, we don't know their names. (laughs) Uh, And that's another thing about this movie that is definitely very, very intentional, is that these characters, their names are never mentioned. It's the witch. It's the baker. It's the baker's wife. It's Cinderella's prince. It's uh, Rapunzel's prince. It's Jack's mother. You know, a lot of these characters don't have names because they are fairy tale archetypes. And I love that. I do really like that aspect of the story. Uh, But yeah, Rapunzel's prince, he hears Rapunzel singing and he feels drawn to her voice. And this is very, very reminiscent of Sleeping Beauty. It reminds me a lot of the scene in Sleeping Beauty when, and this is why I say that I think this is another example of, you know, what I was saying before when I said that I think that this story draws a lot of inspiration, not only from fairy tales, but also from Disney movies. And I feel like the Disney movie like references might even be somewhat exclusive to this because this is a Disney movie, right? So it would make sense that, you know, there would maybe be some references added in that maybe weren't in the original musical. But like I said, even in the original musical, they would have had Disney movies as a frame of reference. So it's possible that they're still in there as well. But anyway, it reminds me a lot of the scene in Sleeping Beauty when Philip first hears Aurora singing. And then shortly after that, not too long after that, he rides up to where he is hearing the voice. And this is, of course, very Snow White-esque and also Sleeping Beauty-esque. So, um, you know, this is just one of those things where it's definitely, I think, kind of playing on the tropes, which a lot of this movie does. Um, and I love how, like, when he realizes that the woman who's singing, when he realizes that her name is Rapunzel, he kind of laughs because, yeah, it is kind of a ridiculous name based on the little bit of research that I did about her name, which, um, I did already know this, but I just wanted to make sure that I had the details correct, which is why I looked this up again. Uh, but Rapunzel means rampion or lamb's lettuce. 
And so there's even, and I can put this in the show notes if you want to watch it. I definitely recommend it. It's hilarious. But um, I recommend all of her videos because they're just really funny and they're right up my alley as far as my sense of humor is concerned. But um, there's a video that uh, Melinda Kathleen Reese did on her YouTube channel. And she does like this series of songs that are like parodies of the original songs, but she puts the lyrics through several layers of Google Translate before putting them back into English so that when they come back into English, they're basically nonsense. <laughs> and it's hilarious. I highly recommend watching those videos. But there's one in which she does Mother Knows Best from Tangled, which Mother Gothel sings. And um, there's a part in the original song where... Uh, Gothel says like Rapunzel and I think it's near the end when she says her name and then she's like don't ever ask me to leave this tower again something to that effect but in the version that Melinda did in which the lyrics go through several layers of Google Translate first she ends up calling her lettuce <laughs> and it just I think that into the woods might be deliberately like poking fun at that because it's revealed that that is not actually Rapunzel's name. Like entangled. I don't know about the original Rapunzel story, to be honest. I can't even remember if I've read that. I've read a lot of grim stories, but I don't remember if I've read that one. I probably have, but I know that entangled Rapunzel. I don't remember that being a name that Gothel gave her. I think that she was already named Rapunzel if I remember correctly, but here the witch gave her that name, and that is perfect on several levels. One, it kind of solidifies the witch's status as a villain, because who else would basically name their child Lettuce? <laughs> but also, she's a witch. So it would kind of make sense for a witch to name like a child after like a garden item or a plant, you know? Like, that's kind of witchy. So <laughs> it, it, it's just perfect. And I don't know if that was intentional, but I have a feeling it probably was. Um, and we also see that it physically hurts Rapunzel to have someone climb her hair. And this is really funny, not because I find it funny when people are in physical pain. Um, it's funny because it's just totally making fun of fairy tales. It's having fun with it, you know, because it's like, that would very likely happen. If somebody had like hair that was so long that you were able to throw it out of a castle, like a dungeon window, a tower window, tower, I think is the word that I wanted. Uh, you can throw it out the window of a tower and somebody can climb up it into the tower. Like if you have hair like that, it's most likely going to hurt your head and your scalp for somebody using the weight of their body to climb it. Like, yeah, that doesn't seem pleasant. So, you know, and this is kind of like making fun of that. It's poking fun at that by showing that, yeah, it visibly is hurting her. Um, so, yeah, I really like that. But returning to Jack's beanstalk, um, he climbs up the beanstalk that grows near his house. And he has some sort of adventure that we don't see. Uh, we don't see any of what happens there. But he kind of narrates it a little bit in the song Giants in the Sky. And I had quite a few realizations on this rewatch of the movie that I hadn't had before. And I think that might be another reason why I found myself appreciating it a lot more because I was picking up on some of the themes and the references and things like that that I might not have been picking up on before. 
And one of those things is that this song is basically just straight up Joseph Campbell's hero's journey set to a song. So yeah, I mean, like when Jack sings, for example, when you're way up high and you look below at the world you've left and the things you know, little more than a glance is enough to show you just how small you are. And then he goes on to say, goes on to sing, I should say later in the song, and you scramble down and you look below and the world you know begins to grow. The roof, the house, and your mother at the door, the roof, the house, and the world you never thought to explore, and you think of all the things you've seen, and you wish that you could live in between, and you're back again, only different than before. So this is 100% Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. It also reminds me a lot of the poem Instructions by Neil Gaiman, uh, which is also heavily inspired by the hero's journey. Uh, so yeah, and I didn't notice that before. This was probably the first time that I've seen this movie three or four times, I think. And I think this is the first time I've noticed that, wow, like he's basically singing the hero's journey right now. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we, we continue to see this conflict between the baker and his wife where he feels responsible for this curse on his family, and they have this argument where he insists that the curse is on my house, and she says, no, it's on our house, and she's right, um, you know, but he feels like he needs to take care of this himself because, you know, and one of the themes of this movie is fault, and when something goes wrong, who do we blame, you know, and that's definitely one of the themes of the movie is that sometimes... Like, we all played a part. Sometimes there is no one single person to blame, you know? Like, it takes multiple people sometimes to create a problem. And, uh, but anyway, I'm getting a little sidetracked here. The point that I'm trying to get at is that, uh, you know, one of the disagreements that they have is that he wants her to go home and let him handle this himself. And so he keeps insisting that she go home. And at one point he says, like, you know, we can solve this problem and just go back to our normal life, go back to the way things were. Although, with the exception, I would imagine, of having a child now because they're trying to break the curse. Um, but I think that this is honestly where it becomes very obvious why she really came along on this adventure in the first place, which is that she wants adventure in the great wide somewhere. She wants it more than she can tell. <laughs> but for real, you know, she is clearly not happy with her life. She This is another Disney princess trope, even though she's not a princess. And I think that's another thing that the movie is playing on, is this idea that Cinderella is the, the Disney princess, right? She's the, there literally is a Disney princess named Cinderella, right? The baker's wife is nobody. She's a made-up character for this story. You know, she's not based on any big fairy tale character or Disney character. And yet, she's kind of the one that in some ways is a little bit more like a Disney princess because she actually wants what Cinderella has. Cinderella doesn't really know that she wants it. You know, she's not sure what she wants. But the baker's wife, though, is sure. She's positive that she wants something more out of life. She feels like this can't be it. There has to be more to life than this, you know? Um, and that may or may not mean that she's not happy with the baker, that she wants somebody else, that she doesn't want to be with him anymore. Um, you know, I don't know. I think that she probably does love him, but just that she wants more out of life. She wants to feel like she's accomplishing more, you know? And 
that's not happening in her current situation. And Agony is a duet that's sung between the two princes. It's sung between Cinderella's prince and Rapunzel's prince. And it's really funny because the agony that they're feeling basically comes from the fact that their masculinity has been injured. And this is especially true regarding Cinderella's prince, because we end up finding out that, you know, he's he's not all that charming after all. Like, he is, but also kind of in a manipulative way, you know, and somewhat of a deceitful way, you know, because he ends up cheating on Cinderella, and he is somewhat of a womanizer, and, um, you know, his masculinity has been injured because Cinderella has run away from him. A woman not interested in me? How dare she? You know, so <laughs> that's kind of what they're singing about, especially regarding Cinderella's prince. Um, but speaking of Rapunzel's prince, um, the baker's wife soon comes upon Rapunzel's hair and realizes, gets excited because she realizes that this is one of the ingredients that they need. Uh, and so Rapunzel's aware that somebody's out there. And so she asks if it is her prince. And the baker's wife is like, Yes, <laughs> in a really deep voice, and it's so funny. <laughs> there were some scenes in this movie that legit had me, like, cackling. Like, I did not remember this movie being as funny as it is. This is one of the scenes that had me laughing. Uh, but she does manage to get some hair from Rapunzel, which that's one of the ingredients, so check that off the list, because that's not going to cause a problem later on. <laughs> Uh, but they, the baker and the baker's wife, they end up singing a song called It Takes Two. And this song is so adorable, but it also makes what ends up happening that much more tragic and also infuriating because it seems after this song that they're good now. You know, they are on the right frequency together. You know, they're, they're on this journey together now, you know, and they truly do love and respect each other. They're partners, you know, seems like that's the case. So, like I said, though, you know, unfortunately, things are not going to be as simple and as easy as we might be led to believe. Um, but some of the lyrics in this song are so good. Um, I really like the lyrics that go, It takes patience and fear and despair to change. Though you swear to change, who can tell if you do? It takes two. You know, so this is just like a really powerful message about how changing, if you truly want to change, um, it's scary. It's not easy. But it does get a little bit easier if you have somebody kind of cheering you on, you know, somebody who's holding you accountable and uh, is there to see the change, someone other than just yourself, you know? So, yeah, it's it's a really nice line. Um, but I also do love how in the song, the baker's wife sings that, quote, you're passionate, charming, considerate, uh, you know, and I love this because it's like the prince, Cinderella's prince, was just describing himself in a similar way in the song Agony which is ironic because in this case, it's probably a little bit closer to the truth. <laughs> uh, and I mentioned already that, you know, the baker's wife is one of my favorite characters, one of my two favorite characters, really. But she's also a bit of a hypocrite at times because she says to the baker, like, you would take money before a child because this is after the baker has um, taken gold from Jack for Milky White. And it's like, um... You knowingly conned him earlier in the movie, so you're just upset now because you don't have the cow anymore. You're not upset because he, like, took money from a child. Like, you conned that child earlier in the movie, 
you took his cow from him, which he was going to exchange for money, which means you essentially did take money from him, and gave him beans, which you thought were worthless. Like, you're being a hypocrite. <laughs> but I also think that's one of the points of the movie, is that there is no character in this movie that's, like, a perfect character. You know, all of these characters are flawed, and that's one of the points, I think. You know, that's one of the themes of the movie. So I do really like that. But it's also kind of funny how, like, the baker's wife most likely appears as just certifiably insane to Cinderella because, you know, Cinderella has her golden slippers, which, you know, a gold slipper is one of the ingredients for the spell. And uh, she's trying to get a slipper from her, from Cinderella. And she says, like, I need that shoe to have a child. And Cinderella says, that makes no sense. And that's really funny. But then it gets even funnier later in the movie because uh, Cinderella, we see her and her prince at the wedding ceremony. And the baker and the baker's wife are there as well. And uh, they're there with their child because by this point, you know, it's jumped a little bit forward into the future. And by this point, they've managed to have a child because the curse was reversed. And uh, you see them in the crowd and... They shout out to Cinderella, thanks for the slipper, and point to the baby. And the look on Cinderella's face is priceless. It's so funny. <laughs> you can just tell, like, what's going on in her mind. Like, what does a golden slipper have to do with conceiving a child? Like, what did they do with that slipper? <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, speaking of the shoe, though... Uh, the stepmother, you know, Cinderella's stepmother, she mutilates the stepsister's feet so that they'll fit in the slipper. Um, and Cinderella's birds also eventually blind the stepsisters as punishment for their cruelty. And these are actually both very dark, kind of gruesome graphic elements that are taken from the Grimm story. Um, and I will say, though, that after the stepmother mutilates their feet, she sings, When you're his bride, you can sit or ride. You'll never need to walk. Wow. Like, I, I don't know what else to say. This is just a perfect example of, very likely, Disney not recognizing Stephen Sondheim's brand and what that very likely means. <laughs> because it's pretty obvious to me. Uh, but Milky White does sadly eventually pass away because like i said even though it's super convenient you know they need four ingredients that just happen to be uh crucial elements of these other characters stories uh it's not going to be that easy and so milky white passes away um but of course the witch does end up bringing her back so it's all right but the baker with the gold that he's gotten from jack buys a new cow but the problem is that this one isn't actually white. Uh, but the line here is just really, really funny because it doesn't take the witch long to realize that this cow is not white and that she's been disguised with like flour or something. I can't remember what it is that the baker uses to disguise her, but it doesn't take the witch long to realize that that's what happened. And they say, well, like Milky White died. Like we didn't know what to do. We assumed that you would prefer a live cow. And the witch says, of course I would prefer a live cow. So show me the dead cow. I'll bring her back to life. <laughs> and her delivery is just gold. It's so good, um, the way that she says it. Um, 
And, you know, just I talked before about how I think that this might be my favorite performance in the movie. Um, And, you know, of course, that's not surprising because it's Meryl Streep. Like, she's obviously just phenomenal. She's won Academy Awards, well-deserved ones, and she's just great. Um, So that's no surprise. But another example of her excellent performance in this movie is um, she sings this song, Stay With Me, to Rapunzel. And she seems so sincerely soft and loving during and immediately after this song. But then she like rapidly switches gears and becomes full on villain slash abusive parent slash captor. Like it's honestly kind of scary. And I have to tip my hat to Meryl Streep. Um, I just feel like this is such a rich, complex, fascinating character. Uh, and she's just played so brilliantly by Meryl Streep. So yeah, I definitely have to tip my hat to this performance. But after a little bit of trial and error, um, you know, because like I said, they have to bring the cow back to life because the cow that they bought is not white and she needs it to be white. And uh, the hair is no good because she can't have touched any of the ingredients and she's obviously touched Rapunzel's hair. So that's not going to work. But then they have this wonderful idea to use the metaphorical, like not literal hair off a thing of corn. <laughs> um, and that works. So yay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they, they have to go through a little bit of trial and error. But the witch not only gets her beauty back, but the baker and his wife are able to have a child. In fact, the baker's wife is now suddenly several months pregnant. Um, what a wonderfully happy ending. Yeah, if only it ended there. <laughs> but remember, here's the thing. It's easy to kind of like fall into this trap here of thinking, oh, everything is so well and good. Like this is everybody has their happy ending, right? But first of all, there's still quite a bit left of the movie. And second of all, uh, Cinderella, she was offered a bean for one of her gold slippers and she threw the bean thinking that it couldn't possibly be magic. That's nonsense, even though the whole reason she has a gown and slippers and all that stuff in the first place is because of magic. So whatever. Um, <laughs> she throws it anyway. And that has not yet been resolved. We know what these beans do, which means another beanstalk is going to grow, right? So yeah, and that's going to be the problem. <laughs> um, but it's kind of easy to forget that because it just seems like everybody has their happy ending now. And I will say that like, I do honestly kind of feel bad for the giant's wife. Like I understand her point of view. I'm not saying that like murder is, even if it's as an act of revenge, that it's justifiable, but I will also say that even though most likely that is what she was trying to do, that she did want to kill Jack, we don't know that for sure. She just kept saying, give me the boy. She didn't say what she wanted with him. So we don't know for sure that she was going to kill him. But, you know, he did have a part in killing her husband because he was stealing something. And that's not right. That's a villainous thing to do. Jack was the villain in that story. He went up to their world and stole something precious of theirs, and then caused the death of somebody. So, like, you can understand where she's coming from. Um, you know, and that's kind of one of the themes of this movie, too, is what makes a villain? You know, I mentioned this already, like, are all of these people villains in one way or another? You know, because, like, and this kind of ties in with what I think another one of the themes of the movie is, which is that sometimes happy endings come at a price. Not only just prices that we have to pay ourselves, but also prices that other people have to pay. Like sometimes 
our happiness comes at the expense of somebody else's unhappiness. And that's definitely one of the themes of this movie. Like, there really was no way for the baker and his wife to get these four ingredients without it hurting anybody, you know? So, yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the themes of the movie. Um, but like I said, yeah, I mean, you can definitely understand the giant's point of view, uh, the giant's wife's point of view. Um, but even Little Red Riding Hood, like I mentioned earlier, how her story kind of develops over time, her character develops. And this is an example of where we see that because even she comes to show compassion for the giant, you know, because she says, like, a giant's a person. Aren't we to show forgiveness? Like, she doesn't feel right about killing the giant. Uh, but, you know, I will say that I, I mean, obviously this whole, like, I don't know if you would call it the second half, because I think by this point we're actually more than halfway through the story, but I do kind of think of this movie as being in, like, two parts. Like, there's everything that leads up to the curse being broken, the witch getting her beauty back, all that stuff. There's everything that leads up to that, but then, like, you think that that's the happy ending, but it's not because now it's going to be unraveled and that's kind of like the second part of the story. So, um, yeah, but like in this second part, I'm kind of confused as to why the baker and his wife are back in the woods in the first place. Like, obviously, this is what's going to lead to what happens, which is tragic, and I wish that it didn't happen, but it does. Um, you know, so it's like, I don't know why they were back in the woods in the first place, though. I'm kind of confused about that. Um, but yeah, the witch has her beauty back and she approaches Rapunzel thinking that Rapunzel will accept her now because she's beautiful. And this is honestly kind of sad. Like this is an example of what makes this character so complex and interesting because even though she does do some pretty evil things, there are also times where you can kind of like feel sorry for her and even kind of understand where she's coming from. Uh, and it's really sad because like she approaches Rapunzel Rapunzel doesn't immediately recognize her because she looks totally different now. Uh, but the witch says to her, now you don't have to be embarrassed by me. And this is like so heartbreaking. Uh, and I also then feel really sorry for her because Rapunzel says, don't you understand? I never want to see you again, ever. And like, this is totally justifiable. This is completely justifiable. This is somebody who abducted her as a baby. So she's her captor. Like, this is like horror movie stuff, you know? This is somebody that's been holding you prisoner, been holding you captive your whole life. So she's totally justifiable in this decision that she's making. So I'm not saying that this isn't justified, but up until this point in the story, you've kind of gotten to know the witch a little bit as a character. You've gotten a little bit attached to her. You understand her a little bit better, and so... It feels like a gut punch, even though you totally understand where Rapunzel is coming from. But as I said before, like, in this second part of the movie, so many people's happy endings are now beginning to unfurl. Like, Cinderella's prince taints two of them. Like, he basically ruins two happy endings. His own with Cinderella, and then the baker's wife's with the baker. Um, by seducing her in the woods. And I said earlier that, you know, there's a line in the movie that kind of foreshadows this when the baker's wife says, you know... If a prince were looking for me, I wouldn't be hiding. Um, and I really, really hate that this happens. But, you know, I also find the song that the prince sings to be funny because, like, you know, he keeps basically saying things like, you know, anything can happen in the woods. Like, you know, the woods are basically being talked about as if they're Vegas. Like, what happens in the woods stays in the woods, <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> that's kind of what this song is doing and so he keeps saying like you know anything can happen in the woods it's very obvious what he means by anything and she tells him at one point like listen i have a husband you have a wife like you're married to a princess like what are you doing like what are we doing we can't do this right and he says you're right how foolish and he starts to walk away and you think he's given up but then he turns around and continues singing the song, only this time he sings, Foolishness Can Happen in the Woods. <laughs> so it is really funny. There's something comic about his persistence, but at the same time, it is cringy and hard to watch because she says no several times. It's not like just this once like kind of half-hearted, like, mm, I'm not sure. I mean, honestly, even that would be like, okay, if they're saying they're not sure, that's a no. You know, the only thing that means yes is yes. But it's not even that. I mean, she's very adamant about, no, this isn't right. We can't do this. She says no several times, and he will not take that for an answer. He continues trying to convince her, eventually basically coercing her, like not with a threat or anything, but just making it clear that he's not going to stop. He's not going to give this up until it happens. And so, you know, she was kind of assaulted you know like that's part of the reason i hate that it happens because it's kind of cringy it's kind of hard to watch um you know it's like like she has said no several times and she shouldn't have had to say it twice like the first time she said no you should have been out of there now here's the thing i do understand that there's a way of reading this which is that this is what she truly wants she wants this but society has taught her no this isn't okay this is not acceptable behavior for a young woman. You are married. Uh, you know, you shouldn't want to explore yourself. You shouldn't want to, uh, you're, you shouldn't even be a sexual being, you know, like, so there is a way to read it that way. But still, I would just say that at the end of the day, the only thing that truly matters here is that she said no multiple times and you did not listen. So it is kind of hard to watch. But uh, she does sing a song, like, after her encounter with the prince, though, that has a funny line in it. Um, she sings, have a child for warmth, have a baker for bread, have a prince for whatever. <laughs> and she laughs. Like, when she says whatever, she laughs. And her laugh here seems so natural that I was even tempted to think at first that this was actually Emily Blunt laughing and it wasn't scripted, and they just decided to keep it in because it worked so well. But then I got thinking, and I was like, well, most of these vocals, if not all of them, well, actually, I know it's a fact that not all of them were, because I remember reading somewhere that um, the actress who plays Jack's mother um, sang all of her parts live um, on set. Um, but a lot of these parts were probably pre-recorded in a studio, um, which would mean that the laugh was not impromptu. So... Um, maybe not, but it definitely does seem that way. But I think that also speaks to, you know, I said earlier that I think that this is my favorite performance of Emily Blunt's. You can tell that she just was really, really into this person's, like, this character's mind and really was representing her. And it was just really great acting. It's a really great performance, I think. Uh, but shortly after this, unfortunately, and, like, the first time I saw this movie, I was devastated. And it's one of the reasons why I found myself not liking it, <laughs> because I just hated, 
I hated so much. It seemed to go against everything that the movie was supposed to do. And I still sort of feel that way, but I also understand better now that that's exactly why it happened. Because they don't want you to be comfortable. This movie wants to subvert all of your expectations about fairy tales and happy endings. And it does that very well. Um, because the baker's wife unfortunately dies here. Um, she basically is, uh, because by this point, the giant's wife has come down to this world, you know, has climbed down the beanstalk into our world, seeking revenge for the death of her husband. And because the giant is so huge, she's basically causing like earthquakes as she's traveling, as she's walking through their, their land, you know, their woods. And so at one point there basically is like an earthquake. That's basically what it amounts to. And, uh, it's not really an earthquake, but again, that's what it looks like. And the baker's wife falls from a cliff and, uh, I just, I really hate this part because I love this character so much. Um, it's so horribly tragic. Uh, it feels kind of almost unnecessary. And, you know, I think that one of the things I really hate about it, and like I said, I don't think that this was the intention. I think that it was just to subvert your expectations. But in a sense, she is kind of like fridged. I don't know if you're familiar at all with that trope, but it's something that goes way, 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 way back where a female character basically has to either die or go through some sort of horrible ordeal or both because it's going to further a male character's story. You're just killing this character to further a male character's story. And that is kind of what happens here because up until this point, the baker does not think of himself as being father material. He doesn't think of himself as being capable of properly taking care of a child. Um, he even like tries to hold the baby at various points, but the baby starts crying. And so he hands the baby back to the baker's wife, his wife, uh, you know, and says that he needs his mother. Like, I'm no good with this. I'm not a good parent. And so, um, you know, her death does lead him ultimately to becoming a more responsible parent. You know, he knows that I don't have her help anymore. Like, she's not going to be able to be a mother to this child, so I'm going to have to fill in. You know, like, I'm really going to have to step up, and I'm going to have to take responsibility. Uh, so it does, in a sense, kind of like further his development and his arc, but she was also like a really complex, rich, fully developed character that deserved more than to die just to further his story. And I think that that is kind of what happens here. Again, I don't know if that was the intention, but that is kind of what happens. Like the baker's wife is kind of fridged in this story and I don't love that. But we then get the song Your Fault, which is another part in this movie that especially on this rewatch had me laughing hysterically because they basically keep trying to throw the blame at one another as far as like everything that has gone wrong and what has happened and like trying to get to the bottom of who set all of this in motion, like who is ultimately responsible for this. And they can't really seem to arrive at an answer because everybody did something basically in response to something that someone else did, you know? So it's like, let me give you some examples from this song of the lyrics here. 
So at first, they're blaming Jack. Um, I mean, after all, he is the one that the giant's wife wants revenge on. He's the one that caused the death of the giant by going up there and stealing something. So it kind of makes sense that they're blaming him, but that's how they start. Um, and he defends himself by saying, but it isn't my fault. I was given those beans. You persuaded me to trade away my cow for beans. And without those beans, there'd have been no stock to get up to the giants in the first place. Uh, and so now it's kind of like the baker that's being blamed because he's the one that gave the beans to Jack in the first place. Um, but then the baker says, wait a minute, magic beans for a cow so old that you had to tell a lie to sell it, which you told, were they worthless beans? Were they oversold? Oh, and tell us who persuaded you to steal that gold, right? So he's saying like, wait a minute, the cow wasn't worth anything to begin with because you had to lie and say that she was milking just fine, even though she wasn't. So you were dishonest to begin with. And why did you steal gold in the first place? Who persuaded you to do that? But then they're like trying to figure out, well, wait a minute. How did the giant's wife get here in the first place? The other beanstalk was destroyed. So how did she get here? There must be another one, right? So Jack says like, wait a minute though. I chopped down the beanstalk, right? That's clear. But without any beanstalk, then what's queer is how did the second giant get down here? And that's when they realize that Cinderella is basically the one who has caused this because she threw that bean, which led to the beanstalk. Um, but first, they blame the baker's wife, who has passed away now, uh, because he says, like the baker says in his defense, like, I didn't pocket the other bean, I gave it to my wife. And they're like, so it's her fault. <laughs> And again, that's when they realize, no, actually, it's Cinderella's fault because uh, the baker says, wait a minute, she exchanged that bean to obtain your shoe. So the one who knows what happened to that bean is you. Um, and so then Cinderella says, you mean that old bean that your wife, oh dear, but I never knew. And so I threw, well, don't look here. And again, they just keep going back and forth here. Like, it's your fault. No, it's not my fault because I did this because of what this person did. And then that person is like, but it's not my fault because I did this because of what this person did. And it just goes on and on and on. So again, that's kind of one of the themes of the story here is that it's not productive to try to place blame somewhere, you know, like all of these people played a role in what happened here. And it doesn't even do any good to determine that it was the baker's wife's fault because she's not even here anymore. Like, what difference does it make if it's her fault? You know, like, <laughs> it's just pointless. And that, I think, is what makes it so funny. It's like, why does this even matter? Why are you spending so much time trying to figure out whose fault this is rather than just trying to solve the problem? And that leads to what is probably my favorite song from the movie, which is the witch's song, Last Midnight. And, you know, because here's the thing, I just mentioned how we really should be trying to solve the problem here rather than placing blame. And yeah, and I mean, the witch does offer up a solution here, and it's not necessarily a bad solution. <laughs> she says like, okay, the giant is going to destroy these woods, like she's going to destroy our homes. This is basically the apocalypse. It's the end of the world as we know it. Our home is going to be destroyed, and we are probably going to be destroyed. So we need to do what the giant is asking. We need to give the giant this boy. Now, I'm not saying, because again, like I said, it's likely that the giant wants to kill Jack. We don't know that as a fact, but that's likely. I think it's reasonable to make that assumption. 
And I'm not saying that like sacrificing the life of a young boy is ever an okay or acceptable thing. And I'm not saying that it would be something that would be done easily, but she's not necessarily wrong. I mean, if you give the giant this boy, the giant's going to leave you alone and your homes are not going to be destroyed. You know, you're probably going to be able to repair what's been done so far. And the problem is over with. She's not wrong. (laughs) You know, and so she sings this song last midnight out of frustration, mostly because not only are they just wasting time blaming each other, but they also determine that it's her fault. And so, uh, you know, I love her lines. I'm not good. I'm not nice. I'm just right. And yeah, like I said, one could argue that she is because she's the only one out of all of them who is offering a possible solution to this problem. It might not be a solution that they want to hear, but it's better than nothing, which is what the rest of them are offering. And after singing this song, she just disappears. She basically just Fs off. Like, I don't know what happened to her. It's kind of unclear. Um, It seems like it was some sort of suicide that she used magic to, like, kill herself or I don't know. It could be too that she went to another realm. She went to some sort of other reality. I'm not sure what happened to her. I think it's deliberately, um, you know, left kind of to your imagination. The true ending though here is kind of sweet. Um, even though I, I really hate that they killed the baker's wife. Um, I mentioned that already. I also kind of hate that they killed the giant's wife because that kind of like just goes against what they were just saying, you know, about, the giant, you know, maybe we should forgive the giant. The giant's a person. And there's even a line, I think, in the last song of the movie, um, you know, that witches can be good, or I'm sorry, witches can be right, giants can be good. And it's like, okay, but that would have been sold much more effectively if you had been able to have some sort of discussion with the giant. You had been able to come to some sort of diplomatic solution, you know? But that's not what happens. The giant is relentless, so you're forced to kill the giant. So, Giants can be good. Well, who learned that lesson? I don't know who was supposed to have learned that lesson, except maybe Little Red Riding Hood, who has to watch the giant die anyway. So I don't really get that. Um, Just like, you know, the witch, like, yeah, witches can be right. All right, but you didn't listen to the witch. So who learned that lesson? (laughs) Um, But all in all, though, it's a nice ending because they've kind of all found family in each other. Like they've all lost something. They've all lost something precious to them in one way or another. Cinderella really has nowhere to go now, you know, and her prince she has found out has cheated on her, been unfaithful. And so she really doesn't have a place to go. Um, Little Red Riding Hood's home has been destroyed. She has nowhere to go. Jack's mother has died. He has nowhere to go. So they decide to kind of just all live together. So it's going to be the baker, the baby, Cinderella, Jack, and Little Red Riding Hood. So they're going to be this unconventional family. Um, It's a happy ending, but it's definitely not the one that you expected. (laughs) And it's not a conventional ending. Um, But then we get the reveal that I mentioned earlier, where it's revealed that um, the baker has now sat down with his baby and with everybody else and is now narrating this story. And so it's a very cool full circle moment, and I do really appreciate that. Now, my rating is complicated because, like I said, um, you know, I really didn't like this movie when I first saw it. I hated that they killed the baker's wife. 
it did not feel at all like a Disney movie. Um, and it felt kind of cynical and even bleak kind of, um, and I didn't love that because it just wasn't what I was expecting. You know, like it's one thing if you go into a movie expecting that it's going to be kind of bleak and dark and, um, you know, like obviously if you go see a horror movie, for example, that's the expectation. <laughs> so, you know, you're not going to be necessarily bummed if that's what it is, but that's really not what I was expecting from this movie. So like when I first saw it, I just didn't like the way that it made me feel. And, uh, that has improved over time. Like I said, I've now seen this, I don't know, three or four times and I have a lot more appreciation for it now than I did when I first saw it. But I do still really, really hate that the baker's wife is killed. I don't necessarily think that that was necessary to arrive at that ending of, um, you know, finding family together, you know, and I just, like I said, in a lot of ways, I think that can be interpreted as a refrigerator trope and I don't love that. So, you know, I, I just, I have to arrive at a seven out of 10 for this movie because there are things that I love about this movie. I, I definitely appreciate the music more. Like that was another thing that happened for me on this rewatch is that I appreciated the music more than I did before. Uh, and the acting, the cast is just so perfect. And Meryl Streep as the witch is perfect. Emily Blunt as the baker's wife is perfect. James Corden as the baker is perfect. Like a lot of these characters are just so perfectly casted. Um, and I do love that about it. Um, but just, I hate the baker's wife's death so much that <laughs> it kind of like lowers my, my score for this movie by at least a couple points. So I just feel comfortable with a seven, which is still, you know, that's, that's not anything to sneeze at. Like, I do like this movie, you know, I think I might've also given Snow White a seven, I think. And that is a beloved classic that I've seen many, many times in my life. So, uh, you know, I like that movie too. So seven isn't necessarily a bad rating, but you know, it's also not stellar. It's not, you know, there are going to be movies on this podcast that I'm giving, I'm easily giving like nine and a half and 10 to, because I love that much. And, you know, this is not one of those movies, but, um, I appreciate it for what it is. And I definitely, like I said, appreciate the, uh, you know, just like what it's trying to do, you know, it's, it's use of humor and how it's trying to like trick you into this false sense of security, thinking that you're going to get this conventional expected happy ending. And then you don't, you know, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, overall I like the movie, but it's also in some ways just not my favorite. <laughs> so yeah. So moving on to listener feedback, I did get something from Amanda this week, uh, sharing her thoughts and observations and commentary on Into the Woods. So let's listen to that. And um, I will then give you my contact info in case you want to do something like this in the future. I would love that. Uh, please participate. Uh, join the discussion. I would absolutely love that. Uh but let's hear what Amanda has to say about Into the Woods. The greatest thing about Into the Woods 
is that it takes this fairy tale adventures and stories that we have seen and heard time and time again, and in typical Sondheim style, it lets us see the darker side. Stick with me. It's going to get a little Sweeney Todd here. My favorite, because we all have a favorite when it comes to a compilation like Into the Woods, is definitely Little Red Riding Hood because the Sondheim version and therefore the Disney version of the film, it really sticks to the original moral of Little Red Riding Hood, which is about how not everything and everyone is completely innocent and that you cannot necessarily take people at face value. I think that the Disney version did an absolutely phenomenal job casting Johnny Depp as the creepy wolf because that's kind of his typecast at this stage, kind of unhinged. And the wolf in this and in real life is supposed to represent someone that would be more than willing to take advantage of someone younger and more naive. And that's something that a lot of us are going to see in life. And unfortunately, a lot of us might learn that the hard way. And then we'll know things now. That being said, I think there are also a lot of other morals to learn from the other characters in Into the Woods because not everyone gets what they want and finds themselves completely happy. That again is a moral that so many people need to learn in life in that not everything you wish for and think that you want is actually meant to be for you and it isn't necessarily something that will give you a lifetime of achievement and happiness and fulfillment. That is experienced by our princes as they're in agony. It's also experienced by Cinderella who thinks that not having to look after her stepsisters and her stepmother means that she will be happy, but being stagnant doesn't seem to fit her. There's also the case of the baker's wife who thinks having a child will magically fix her life, which, spoiler, it doesn't. That being said, there are a few casualties along the way. While many people do get their just desserts for being a little bit foolish, there are some cases where you have to wonder why that particular person got that particular ending. And it might just be that in life, not everything is fair. I personally... Don't think that in Rapunzel's case, going against your mother and deciding that you want to be your own person and forge your own path 
means that you should be squashed by a giant. I also don't think that's something that everybody needs to worry about on a day-to-day basis, but I shouldn't make promises I can't keep. So moving on, I think that the direction that this play goes trying to interweave all of these stories seamlessly is pretty perfect to me. While some might argue that there isn't really a full story because it has so many different interlocking parts that have to go together and they don't all necessarily meet, that just makes it even more realistic for a tale from back in the day because they would have been told orally and not every story would have the same beginning and the same end. Usually if you look across folklore and fairy tales, a lot of the main components of a story will be the same, but not necessarily the story overall. Everything else being already said, I absolutely love the music. Sondheim is obviously a genius. And I think that if you had never heard the fairy tales before, this is not how I would recommend hearing about them because you would miss so many integral little parts that just wouldn't make sense if this was the only way you had heard of these characters before. However, overall, I think that it's a really good representation of the dark morals and values that really stuck out with all of these fairy tales to begin with. And I think, for one, that it is absolutely amazing that Disney took the chance and decided to grab something darker, grittier, something that was really the basis of everything that they've done, other than obviously Donald Duck and Daisy and their original characters. But most of all their animated films and bigger releases, at least at the start, were based on these ancient very old fairy tales, folk tales. So it's so cool to see them embracing the darkness and giving us something gothic that we can all relate to and learn from and grow with and continue to learn from. So thank you so, so much, Amanda. That was awesome. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely, uh, I touched quite a bit on the idea that it subverts your expectations about fairy tales and is very dark and is kind of a surprising thing for Disney to take on. Um, But you also, I mean, that's why I'm saying it was such awesome commentary because um, you touched upon a lot of things that I never really thought about before and or didn't know. So for example, when you mentioned Rapunzel dying, I was like, wait a minute, when did that happen? I've seen this movie several times and I don't remember Rapunzel dying. Like I was thinking as I was um, listening to you, like I could have sworn that the last time that we see Rapunzel is when she's riding off with her prince and tells the witch that I don't want anything more to do with you. Um, 
And so I was like, am I missing something? Is there a scene that for some reason, every single time I watch this movie, I tune out? <laughs> but uh, I looked it up as I was listening to your commentary. And um, no, that was actually not included in the movie. So that's actually like a major difference between the musical, the stage musical and the movie is that Rapunzel... I don't know if she maybe does die in the movie, but it's supposed to be off screen and just never mentioned. Um, but yeah, it's apparently not like mentioned or seen in the movie, whereas it is in the musical. So that's why I was like, wait a minute. I don't remember that happening. Um, funnily enough, I did actually just a couple of days ago. I haven't. Well, actually, I think it was yesterday. It doesn't matter by the time you're listening to this you know, what is time anyway? <laughs> um, but just recently I, uh, I borrowed a copy of the Broadway musical on DVD, um, because, you know, I'm just intrigued enough by the movie that I want to see the stage production and, um, it is available on DVD. So I'm looking forward to watching that because, you know, like I've already said in this episode, I am not familiar with the Broadway musical. Like, obviously, I'm familiar with its existence, and I know a little bit about it. Uh, like, for example, one thing I know is that Bernadette Peters played the witch originally. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, at some point, Donna Murphy did, which is kind of cool because she also plays the voice of Gothel in Tangled, which is kind of sort of the same character. So <laughs> kind of cool there. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know a whole lot about the musical, so I'm looking forward to seeing it and therefore kind of having a frame of reference as far as like what's different and what's the same is concerned. Um, I do know that there are some extra songs in the musical that were not included in the movie, which is typical. That usually happens whenever you have a Broadway musical that is adapted into a movie. Songs oftentimes get cut. But aside from that, you know, I, I don't know much about the Broadway musical, so I'm really looking forward to finally visiting it. Um, but, you know, and like you talking about Johnny Depp being the perfect choice to play the wolf, uh... I do really, really love him in that role. I did mention before how, you know, it's kind of silly, although it's also, it makes total sense because, you know, he was Johnny Depp. Like, everybody loved Johnny Depp in 2014, especially since that was before the, you know, the uh, the the trial with, with Amber Heard. Um, so pretty much everybody loved him. So I, you know, he was just very, very popular. And so, like, marketing this movie as being you know, a movie that stars Johnny Depp, you're going to get people in theater seats. So it makes sense that they marketed it that way, even though he's only in it for like five or 10 minutes. Uh, but what I wanted to say is that, you know, I never really thought of him as being typecasted as, you know, playing these unhinged characters, but you're totally right. Um, you know, because I usually think of Johnny Depp as being like one of the most well-rounded actors of all time. I mean, you think of like Jack Sparrow, uh, Willy Wonka, uh, Ichabod Crane, Edward Scissorhands, you know, I could go on and on and on with this list. And they're very, very, very different personalities, very different characters. And it's even hard to believe like, and it's not just the makeup. It's definitely not just the makeup. It's his 
acting, you know, because like you look at, for example, like Willy Wonka and Jack Sparrow, and it's like almost impossible to believe that those two characters are played by the same person, you know, because just completely different uh, personalities, completely different, uh, you know, just the gestures they use and everything. They're very, very, very different people. So I've always thought of him as being a very well-rounded actor, but like, I do think you're right in that he gets typecasted as kind of unhinged, potentially even insane people. <laughs> but I, I think he's still a well-rounded actor though, because he plays lots of different types of unhinged <laughs> like Willy Wonka and Jack Sparrow, for example, they are both definitely unhinged, crazy characters, but they're unhinged and crazy in very, very different ways. Uh, so yeah. And I also totally agree that I think one of the themes is that sometimes in life, not everything is fair. You know, the baker's wife did not deserve to die. Um, even though she just, you know, basically, cheated on her husband. Like, I don't think that <laughs> that warrants her falling off a cliff. Uh, you know, so yeah, definitely that is, I think, one of the themes of this story. Um, and I would also agree with you, you know, you mentioned how if somebody is kind of like, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I think this is what you were saying, if I understood you correctly. Um, you're basically like saying that if somebody is basically taking their first venture into fairy tales. This is not the movie for you to do that. And I completely agree because yeah, it is dark and kind of gritty and uh takes you to some uncomfortable places and um I do think that it's meant for people who are familiar with fairy tales. That's not to say that if you're not familiar with them at all, then there's no room for you to possibly enjoy this story. That's not at all what I'm saying, but I do think that there's a lot more room for you to enjoy it and appreciate it if you are familiar with those stories. So I would completely agree with that as well. But once again, thank you so much, Amanda. This was such awesome commentary. I really feel like you added a lot to this episode with that commentary. So thank you. And like I said, uh, if whoever you are listening to this, if you would like to be a part of the podcast in the future, then please, please, please reach out to me with uh, an email, audio, however you want to contribute. I would love that. And unless you like personally ask me not to include it, you'll get to be a part of the podcast because I will include your feedback and give my, uh, my insight into it. So uh, yeah. And also please be sure to stick around till the very end. Um, but like I said, if you would like to contribute, then please do that. You can email me at disneyshpodcast at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash disneyshpodcast. You can follow the Instagram page, which is disneyshpodcast. And you are also welcome to follow my personal Instagram page, which is the lost passenger. Uh, so please be sure to subscribe wherever it is that you're listening so that you never miss new episodes in the future. And speaking of new episodes, next up on the podcast, I will be covering Tangled. So I'm really looking forward to this. Um, it's, it's, it's a good one. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people even cite this as one of their favorite uh, Disney animated movies in the new era of Disney movies. Like I feel like Tangled kind of kickstarted a new era like 
almost like a second renaissance. Uh, and a lot of people cite Tangled as one of their favorites of that era, if not their favorite. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you would like to submit your thoughts about Tangled, your favorite moments from it, uh, you know, your thoughts on it overall, like if it's one that you really like, or maybe it's one that you don't necessarily like all that much, uh, you know, I would love to hear from you. So again, please feel free to reach out. But until then, this has been Disneyish reminding you that witches can be right and giants can be good. You decide what's right, you decide what's good.